0: Yeah, if you don't know much about Mennonite Central Committee (MCC), it's one of the main ways that we've chosen to help with different things overseas, like Gaza. I think we um, we helped some with uh, some African food crisis recently as well, and maybe one day we'll do school kits again or something. I don't know, Jan. What do you think? I was just wondering whether it might be time to do school kids or something like that again, one day. <laughs> okay, so our theme is being rooted together in love, being rooted in love together. And this morning I want to emphasize that there is always an economic side to being rooted together in love. In fact, the origins of the word for economy are household. So the what economics are about is kind of the stuff that makes a household run. So it seems to me the table is a pretty perfect symbol for economy and being rooted together in love means inviting each other to our tables and creating common tables where we're all welcome like spaghetti suppers, for example, you know, potlucks and metaphorically means a lot of other things too. So that's the short version. Now the long version of my talk. It's going to include a bit of storytelling about my life, which is not like to really clearly or simply make a point. It's just to share the complicated nature of trying to live out some of these things. So um, I had to edit so much out of this talk. I didn't think you'd appreciate two and a half hours. So we'll see if we can get through this a little shorter. So... I'm the child of a post-war immigrant who was fleeing chaos and working off her travel debt on a farm in Manitoba. She came over, uh, my mom, when she was uh, a teen after having fled from first uh, Southern Russia, Ukraine, then uh, from Poland into Germany and then came over to Canada after the war. There she found my dad who was also fleeing, in his case, from a failed farm in Southern Manitoba as a teen trying to head up to the city and, and uh, start a new life there where his first job was working under the table, cutting asbestos board, which did in fact kill him uh, 60 years later. Um, so the, those are, those are the, the kind of origins from which I came. And um, well, what they, as a result, they did not provide a lot of wealth and economic uh, step-ups, but what they did provide was a community that was very rich, and so that's what I want to talk about. So there they are. they on the left. That's my mom and dad uh, just getting married and their first little house in probably the, the full-on worst part of Winnipeg in the North End, if you know Winnipeg. Uh, but they had a car, so... Uh, at least, I, maybe maybe it's not theirs. I don't know, Vic is, that, is that, is that their car? It, it's not their car. Okay, there you go. They just took a picture. Maybe it's not even their house. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and there's the three of us kids in the little bungalow, um, moved into that bungalow the day I was born, quite literally, um, in 61. So sorry, Vic, that it kind of cut you off a little bit. There on the bottom, uh, that's uh, Vic and my sister Carolyn and, and me showing off my dance moves on the, on the steps. Uh, I got it all out of my system, though, when I was two, so that was, that was it for me. So by the time these poor and traumatized folk uh, gave birth to me, they'd purchased that little bungalow in North Kildonan, a suburb of Winnipeg and they gave me a life that was very secure and stable in spite of what they had come from. With no financial worries, my dad's job driving a city bus was reliable and adequate. There was no money for fancy things, but somehow there was no financial anxiety passed on to me at all. Most of my friends lived in their own little bungalows and there were no thoughts of inequalities or class differences. But most importantly, my parents were integrated into a Mennonite community that honored hard work and simplicity and care for each other. That Mennonite culture and its strengths would end up getting combined with a more charismatic twist when my parents went in that direction. Pros and cons came with that. But what it all had in common was a spirit of generosity and a foundation of trust in God. So what I inherited was not wealth, but cultural strength and community solidarity I never doubted my ability to make it in the world, and I deeply believed that faithfulness to God was intertwined with being cared for by God. I would take this foundation over inherited wealth any day. Now, Jess asked me to share pictures of when I was a teen because I was saying I was passionate about these pictures, since, uh, passionate about these ideas since my teen years. And so later on, I, I first found a picture, which you will also see, and then I realized I was 20, so that was kind of cheating, wasn't actually a teen, so I slipped, I slipped this picture in. So this is me, just, I actually would, I would get that a lot, actually. So that's, that's me chilling with my first car. That was actually my car, yeah, that yeah, was a, a little blue Datsun 1200, I bought it. Uh, with the spare change from my scholarship. So I got a scholarship of $1,000 when I started university, and school only cost $600 for the whole year. I'm so sorry, students, that you did not grow up in something. But anyway, so I had enough spare change from the scholarship to buy that little car. And uh, you could tell how much I was in love with that car from, from that, that pose. So we were hanging out together. Oh, okay, we'll get to that. Uh, maybe at some point there'll be a sermon where that will be fitting. <laughs> but um, yeah, that is, that is also a picture to be treasured. <laughs> so anyway, when my teen years started emphasizing my Mennonite roots, because um, as some of you know, that was my adolescent rebellion. When my parents went all charismatic, I decided to stay Mennonite. And my understanding and passion for the economic side of faith became more radical. A summer camp oddly translated a theological classic, The Politics of Jesus, into uh, something fitting for adolescent ears and hearts. And I was hooked by ideas like Jubilee and the prophetic passion for economic justice. I learned that teachings like sell all you have and give it to the poor may not have been completely literal, but they were certainly meant to be taken seriously. And I didn't have the slightest interest in getting rich, not even a bit. I wanted Jubilee and Sabbath and stewardship and prophetic justice. There we go. So good economic principles with their roots in ancient Judaism. There, so that's the 20 year old me. Loving those prophets. Now, fortunately for this idealistic and radical young teen, the next thing that happened was my finding the most perfect life partner a guy could imagine. So that's actually my, my, my engagement picture. I was still just a kid, I was, I was 20, Carol was 19 in that picture, but we'd already been going out for three years. Because of that blue car, I mean, how could Carol resist <laughs> that blue car? Anyway, Carol was perfect because here was someone who thought that simple living was a creative challenge and that keeping up with the Joneses couldn't possibly be less appealing. So, perfect partner by my side. It didn't take long before we'd started making commitments to each other like, let's not do debt, which is a pretty tricky promise to each other when two people are in their early 20s with no savings or family help and they're going to university. So we both had scholarships for our first year and lived at home. But then I finished my degree later after we were married by working at the tax center full time, which was a job starting in early February. So that's a tricky deal to do as a student, but manageable. So I'll fast forward, because I mentioned I have too much to say, by saying that we married, had a baby, and then moved out east. And uh, we had dreams of being radical for God and living off the land and starting something kind of like a discipleship training school out of our houses in Moore's Mills. And I say houses because Vic and his family and his one-year-old uh, did this together with us. a create another crazy young radical guy. And here was a glorious start to 20 years of poverty <laughs> and, and happiness. In our years of trying to make uh, what we called Rockmere's Christian Study Center work, only for the first four or five of those those, uh, 20 years, I counted 18 different jobs in those four years that I did on the side um, in order to stay alive until we gave up and I went to seminary to get my counseling degree. So it was not easy having barely enough to live, but it felt like a challenging part of our faith and it worked. Even though I came back with my counseling credentials, now I was a supposed professional, but we were poorer than ever as I tried to start a private practice with just a small stipend on the side from church in the very first years of this church starting up. We had a really old car with 300,000 kilometers on it that burned oil fierce. If we had to do a trip to Fredericton, we'd have to top up the oil. That's, That's the nature of that car. I'm sorry, Earth for the pollution that I did during those years. But we were out in Moore's Mills and completely dependent on a car and no money at all to fix it if something happened to it. So that was a a very uh, tough way to live, thinking what would happen if something happened to the car, but it didn't, it just kept going. And then eventually, uh, Brenda donated her old car by totaling it. (laughs) And so we, uh, we got that old car from her and, and stole the motor, thanks to Gary Sukup and I, who together still had no mechanical knowledge, but somehow we took the motor from that car and put it in mine and kept going for another 50,000 kilometers and then sold it back to Brenda. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good deal. But our income, I, was, I found some old tax statements not too long ago, and I was looking, and the year after we got back from seminary, our income, family of five, mortgage payments, our income that year was under $10,000. And I was trying to think, how the heck? Like $6,000 of that dollars was mortgage. Like how, how is this possible? Then I remembered child tax credit. So we were basically living on our child tax credit. So a few years later, we ended up moving into town and we were able to buy our house without a mortgage, even though at that point we'd never made it above the poverty line. Somehow, just things worked. Eating simply, lots of used clothes, buying just a few toys for the kids, and being a part of a community that didn't honor competition, that didn't honor keeping up with the Joneses, where it was okay to shop all your clothes at at secondhand stores and, and not have all the latest toys. That was a huge part of what made that a workable thing. So I know that this was a mix of cultural strengths and privilege, of beliefs and education and a serious bit of luck. At the time, I would have mostly called it faith and God's blessing, but I know now that it's a lot more complicated than that because many others had similar faith and similar hard work and yet had much harder times. But the real value of faith, I felt, was that we learned how to feel good and relatively relaxed about living on very little and trusting in God and our community. In fact, I actually felt like in a lot of ways I did better at that when we were poor. When we started being able to um, work too much and have uh, a little bit of money to set aside for retirement, it just felt like it became easy to take some of that extra for granted. So now I wanna set the storytelling aside and dip into a few of those principles that I had started getting into when I was that teen. So let's start looking at some of those those principles just super quick to touch on on some of these that all kind of set a context for how I thought about economics. Uh, one of the first is Sabbath, this principle that on the seventh day you rest. So why was it such a big deal that um, like God rested in creation, he invited everyone else to rest with him. Why is that so important? The, here's the, the verse from Exodus. Therefore the Israelites shall keep the Sabbath Observing the Sabbath throughout their generations is a perpetual covenant. It's a sign forever between me and the Israelites that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Well, I think it's because it was a sign that the quality of life is not about work. It's not about production. It's not about always getting as much as you can possibly get, but it's about stepping aside into a different quality of life. One of the best people who writes about that is a Jewish scholar named Abraham Heschel. And if anyone is interested in this, uh, I do recommend his book or anything by him actually. And here are a couple of his quotes from his book on the Sabbath. There's a realm of time where the goal is not to have, but to be, not to own, but to give, not to control, but to share, not to subdue, but to be in accord. Life goes wrong when the control of space the acquisition of things of space becomes our sole concern. And Sabbath is meant to be one way to set us free from some of those things. And he says, man is not a beast of burden and the Sabbath is not for the purpose of enhancing the efficiency of his work because some people would say, well, you rest so that you can get all your energy back to work. And he would very much say, no, it's the other way around. You work a little bit so that you get to take that quality of life time and set it aside to something different. Now, some of this is getting a whole new edge. Uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of the author. This book is is quite fresh. Trish uh, Hersey uh, started something that she calls the nap ministry. And uh, her book is called Rest is Resistance. She's a African-American author who's saying, rest is an important act of resistance to step away from the capitalist pressures of our society that use and exploit people and say, no, we are going to rest because we honor ourselves and we honor the quality of life that comes when we have the opportunity for rest. And so just a couple quotes from uh, this wonderful little book that I've just been exploring. When you slowly begin to believe and understand your inherent worth, rest becomes possible in many ways. So you don't wait for it to be offered to you. You just You just say, this is necessary and it's now. You were not just born to center your entire existence on work and labor, you were born to heal, to grow, to be of service to yourself and community, to practice, to experiment, to create, to have space, to dream, and to connect. So one foundational economic principle is this idea of Sabbath. Stewardship. One of the verses that um, kind of establishes what this is all about Uh, From Leviticus, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. It's this idea of ownership is not, you you don't own land. You're only users of this land that you have a stewardship responsibility for how you are caring for that. Uh, Actually fits a lot with some of the things that we've learned from indigenous communities and and their emphasis on land as something that you participate with and, and steward. And it means that ethical demands are the bottom line. It's not the bottom line, isn't you getting to decide what's best for you. It's ethical demands are owed to that land. We we're owed to use our wealth and our resources to serve not only ourselves, but others. So stewardship is a a very important principle rather than ownership. Tithes and offerings, kind of a troubling, But the point of that isn't so much the law, the point of it is to teach a communal responsibility to make culture and faith and festivities available to all for a culture. So one of the things I remember the first time I read it, I don't, I mean, it was a long, long time ago, but the, the idea that what did they do with at least some portion of those offerings and tithes? They had a party together. That was one of the main purposes of those things, was to give so that the whole community could enter into the feasting and the celebration and the meaning of culture that was available to all, not just for the wealthy. It's also to provide a tangible response of gratitude. Gratitude is such an important thing for us internally, psychologically, but also to know that it's not about earnings and entitlements, but it's about something that we receive and want to respond to with with gratitude. And so to give in response to what we have is is a tangible response of gratitude. And it was also just like a token reminder of stewardship that at least a portion of our giving should be based on communal discernment. So to me, one of the important things of of giving to a community is that I shouldn't be making the decisions for all this stuff that I steward. Some of those decisions should be made by by a group, by a community who's discerning together. And then there's uh, ideas of Sabbath years and Jubilee. So it's not just Sabbath day on the seventh day, but the Sabbath year was every seventh year they were meant to leave fields fallow, to to let the land recover. Um, Not just the humans recovering on the seventh day, but the the land actually need to recover from being overused. And so there's, um, and, and then every seven Sabbaths, so seven times seven years, they would have on the 50th year, the Jubilee year, where it all was, like done to the max. And this system was an amazing attempt to balance freedom and responsibility in a culture, to let there be enough flexibility in how people uh, did their own economic lives and and some would work hard and some would not so much and there would be flexibility for how this would work. But there, there would be these periodic resets that would help make sure that economic disparity didn't get out of hand and that people would always have opportunities available to them. And so in the Jubilee year, uh, land would get redistributed so that, that it would break the the cycle of of greed and of competition and debts would be forgiven. Lots of people doubt that this ever took place in actuality. If it did, certainly didn't take place anywhere near as much as it was envisioned to to do. But it was a clear stance against the accumulation of wealth and economic disparity. It was saying that is not what this is about. You do not have land so that you can compete and accumulate wealth and start creating these societies where there's great riches for some and great poverty for others. So it's it's quite a fascinating um, principle that still has a lot that we can learn from, even though of course we're never gonna do it quite literally. Although there has been a group called the Jubilee Group that has tried to get use those principles to forgive the debt of poor nations. Um, That has made a tiny bit of progress. And then one of the other things um, that really got my attention was how much passion the Hebrew prophets had for economic justice. So I had a great teacher who sadly, I just learned uh, maybe two, three weeks ago, uh, died relatively suddenly, I think in his early 70s. and he taught a course on the prophets and he taught from a book, another book by Abraham Heschel called The Prophets. And I learned how passionate um, they were in terms of speaking about economic justice and how important economic justice was to their vision for how you lived a godly life. And some of the ideas that would come in the midst of this are don't overaccumulate, Do not join field to field. It's not about getting, getting, getting and trying to see how much you can gain. Don't exploit others. Um, like just one sample of the many lines that don't trample the heads of the poor into the dust. And this sense that if you really are wealthy, you are exploiting others. So woe to those who lie on their beds of ivory. You can't get too wealthy without having exploited others in order to get to that place. So you need to think of how to stay in solidarity with the poor and to start giving more. And of course, this prioritizing of care for the widows and orphans and for the strangers in the land, the people who would be most vulnerable and who wouldn't have opportunity to care for themselves. So as I was swimming in all of these ideas and they were you know, capturing my attention, my heart, it just seems so incredibly clear that trying to pay attention to what God wanted for humanity meant prioritizing economic justice, that that was at the heart of things. It wasn't peripheral, it wasn't like an add-on. And that humans were really lousy at that, without constant reminders and divine encouragement. So, then we get Jesus. So, did Jesus say anything about economics? Anybody? Let's give some examples. What did Jesus say about economics? Blessed are the poor. poor. If you have two coats, give one away. The difficulty of the wealthy to get into the kingdom. Yeah, easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. It, I think like over and over, Jesus talked about economic stuff. I think he talked way more about economic stuff than churchy stuff. Yeah, Andre. Yeah, turning over the tables of the money changers, the people who were taking advantage of the temple system to exploit the poor. Again, always the exploitation of the poor and Jesus being so upset with that in the very heart of the temple that he overthrew the, the tables of the people who were doing that. So many examples. We, we could go on, like we've just scratched the surface, like it's over and over and over again, we see how much Jesus cared about economic justice. So how does that relate to some of these things that we've been seeing? Well, I think Jesus emphasized all of the, all of the ideas that had their roots in the Jewish worldview that he'd inherited and he wanted to, to re-stimulate that, that prophetic passion for these things and dial them all up, right? So he dialed up freedom and responsibility now it's not about law, it's about love. But love means even more than the law meant. The law was going for the minimum. Love is going for the whole thing. So and, you know, he gives this example of the, of the Pharisees, the people who would tithe their herbs, right? In order to be so precise, m- missing the whole point of the love that meant for them to be generous in their, in their giving. So instead of the law and the 10%, we have the golden rule to do unto others the way you would have them do unto you with all of your stuff, everything, the whole shoot and match. He dialed up what the radical trust that he invited people into. It's not just the Sabbath, it's not just the one day. In fact, and the Sabbath, it's not about legalism, it's not about serving this institution, it's about like this is a day of opportunity for healing to do well compassionately with people. But but radical trust, is what this is all meant to be about. You don't have to strive and strive and earn and earn. You can relax and trust. And that's what enables you to live more compassionately and lovingly with other people. You get this, you know, really hard word to give everything, you know. And of course the person he was, was talking to was a, a wealthy young ruler who was trying to figure out how to get into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus was inviting him to give all that he had. So he was showing the person how his, his grip on his wealth, uh, he was willing to have that block his, his path. Uh, and so he invited him to give all. We know that he meant these things literally because the church that followed up, what did they do? They sold all they had often. They sold other property, they lived in common in Jerusalem as they faced persecution and they would eat together and live their lives together, pooling their resources. They took it seriously and they took it literally. Blessed are the poor. As Rosie said, that it was justice that's now based on this idea of solidarity. The poor is us. We're meant to so identify with the people who are broken and the people who are weak and the people who are poor that we stand together in this. We don't give it from our positions of power and hand it down. So an incredibly radical vision, all with their roots in, in um, the Jewish you know, prophetic tradition, but all dialed up and enhanced. So this radical vision of trust and love and solidarity that comes through in Jesus. Now, it seems to me this is an, like very clear stuff as you read the gospels, like it seems like it's written um, pretty black and white. So why have Christians had such little impact if that's the case in terms of the economic systems of our day? Well, actually Christians have had lots of impact, but most of it's been negative, at least in, in recent, uh, you know, centuries, lots of centuries. Because way back, you know, three, 400, uh, the common era, the the church got wedded to empire and power and, felt pretty inconvenient to remember all the things that Jesus was saying about economics. And so amazingly good at being deaf to all of those words. Um, The the church has been and forgotten Jesus' words, you cannot serve God and wealth. Oh, that was, no one came up with that one when I was asking, cannot serve God and mammon, the uh, Aramaic, I think word, You uh, you cannot serve God and wealth. And that what the church has demonstrated is that it's been powerless against the biggest idolatry of our era, which I would say is financial security. I thought that picture was a pretty good sign of this. This is a gargoyle from uh, the English town of Winchcombe. And, uh, and they decided to, to take like the town business folk and caricature them to make gargoyles <laughs> <laughs> on their... Uh, on their uh, church. So instead of unmasking this concept of financial security as a tool of Satan, I'm not, I don't intend to be hyperbolic. In fact, I think I'm probably minimizing, like that's how strongly I feel about these things, that this, this notion that we have to serve financial security and that we need to be afraid if we don't have enough financial security is I think the biggest tool of Satan, the tool that undoes all of the invitation to a better way of life and to love and compassion. And the biggest lie that's destroying humanity and destroying the earth is that we need to think of financial security in our decision-making and we need to organize our lives around it And it looks, because our society is so caught up in it, it's so systemic that it looks so innocent and responsible to give in to that kind of idolatry. It's just being a good responsible member of our society. So there are obvious darker sides and we try to push those away and try to keep our hands clean from those things, maybe, not always but you know things like the violence and the exploitation and the colonialism, and we try to keep that far away so we don't have to look at it and feel bad. Right? So it's best if those things happen in other countries so that we think that we're doing the innocent stuff over here. So how do we create that kind of distance? How do we pretend that we're innocent while all those uh, terrible things are happening with our wealth and power? Well, we have these lovely things right, called corporations. If you haven't seen this documentary in this picture called The Corporation, I highly recommend it. It's, I think, over 20 years, it must be over 20 years old because they had a 20th anniversary edition where they updated it and did a follow-up. Um, if you want it, I still have DVDs I can lend. Um, but one of the clever things this documentary does is it takes the, um, the definition of a psychopath and shows you how corporations are psychopathic by definition. Like by law, legally, they need to be psychopathic. They need to care about nothing else but the profit of their shareholders. That's how they're set up. Well, if a person doesn't care about anything else except their profit, they don't care about people. They don't care about the damage they do. They only care about themselves. Well, we would think of them as being a psychopath. And corporations are legally psychopathic. Of course, there's some who try to do better, but, but there's this bias toward not caring about the damage that's done and just caring about profit. You see that, the diagram, the innocence, right, of what we see here. We're just, you know, trying to, trying to live and do well, but then you see that uh, satanic tail hanging behind. Them. So the thing is that we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. Because society tells us that all of our wealth needs to be insured. I have very strong feelings about the insurance company. I had long arguments, well, three long arguments with my insurance company. I got so fed up with the fact that our, in order to insure our house, we have to be insured for $1.2 million. I have never thought of myself as a millionaire, I assure you. But insurance companies say to rebuild my house, and then to obviously, uh, that to rebuild my house costs $650,000, they tell me. And obviously I must have $650,000 worth of stuff inside of it. So you have to be insured for 1.2 million. They will not insure my house for less than that. It's great, we bought our house for $80,000. It's an insane world and we've let insurance companies determine how we live for a long, long time. Anyway, I can, I can rant about that. I guess I just did, but I'll stop. (laughs) Here's the thing that's even more um, ingrained in us is we believe we must accumulate a huge retirement fund. We believe that's the only responsible thing to do. And if we don't do it ourselves, CPP does it for us. So none of us have hands clean. Like I try to take these things seriously. So like we do have a retirement, but I've absolutely refused to invest in mutual funds or... Or corporations. I just can't do it and feel like I have any sense of integrity at all, which means I just get this little bit of interest, you know? But to me, it's worth it. But it doesn't matter. My hands are still not clean because I'm still getting CPP. And just a, as a sample of what CPP is doing with their money, 7% of their fund is involved in war crimes that Israel is perpetuating against Gaza right now. 7% of our money is doing that. Like we're getting rich off of what's happening to Gaza, right? Crazy. So here's where I confess some of my own failures. So this was all way easier for me when I was poor and underemployed. We lived by trust and we had to practice it daily. And it really was in its worst times, it really was daily. Like like you'd make a decision, okay, no, we're good. We can handle this, we can trust God, we can trust community and family and we'll be okay. And then the next day you'd worry about something and you'd have to go through that whole process over again. It really was a daily renewal. Um, I haven't had to do that for a long time, right? I don't have a huge income, just to have a modest income. But if you've lived a long time with little, then the modest income actually feels pretty awesome. <laughs> and, and we haven't had to worry. Now, for a long time, and we've even managed to put some away for retirement, it's not nothing. It kind of shocks me sometimes because I've been so used to thinking of myself as relatively poor by Canadian standards that it's weird to look at that. So I feel a little good about that, but I also feel a lot like a failure because I've stored up treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy I'd feel better if I'd helped create the kind of community where people would so look out for each other financially that we wouldn't need a personal retirement storehouse. That we'd stop looking at people as if they were irresponsible because they don't have one. That mutual aid would be working so well that we really believed that we could be even more generous with each other with addressing things like global exploitation. And I think that's what we should call it. We should stop calling it global global poverty and we should start calling it global exploitation and economic disparity. And the answer to global exploitation is not charitable relief, though we need to do that when there's crises. But it's advocating to stop the exploitation and the violence that makes that exploitation so much worse. MCC, one of the reasons I'm a big fan is because they do that combination really well. Even though some of the people giving don't like that. (laughs) They would rather they stayed away from the advocacy sometimes. But the violence and that exploitation just creates more and more poverty. That we then try to alleviate our guilt and throw a little money at from time to time. So, um, so I, d- I just feel like I haven't done what I you know would have liked to do. It's it's hard to do more. It's hard to create. You have to do it as a as a whole community. And I love what we've done in our community. But it's we still feel like we need our insurance and we still feel like we need our retirement. We still have let our society um, draw us into that way of living. So this is what what I'd like to leave us with is for me, the bottom lines are our trust, not financial security as an idol. We need to trust that as much as we can, we can trust in God, we can trust in the prosperity of the earth. We trust in each other and our communities. And to me, those things are all very integrated so that our hard work and our simple living can enable us to keep investing in community, to being rooted together in love. Families and individuals over the years have given generously to make this church a living community and its presence and SSU and its presence has drawn people to our town who are making a significant impact, especially as we've seen in recent years in working for the unsheltered in welcoming newcomers in creating a community garden in offering a coffee house and in caring for each other in all kinds of little ways. Maybe we'll soon start a time banking system. Lorna's gonna be unstoppable to help seniors and others. That's all a pretty decent investment of time and money. And this is the kind of economy that helps us to be rooted together in love. It's worth really investing in together. And I've certainly never regretted in the kind of investment of time or money that I've given to communities like these. In fact, this matters a lot more to me than that retirement fund. So we'll have resources to do this, to invest in community if we keep giving as little of ourselves as possible to the machine. That's uh, Paul Kingsnorth, uh, another author I've been appreciating lately, uh, has been using for the systems of the world that try to keep us less human, that keep us Uh, in the thrall of corporations and militarized governments. And when we resist consumerism and resist investing more and more in our retirement, it'll enable us to invest instead in local community. And we can support each other by trying to do the opposite of keeping up with the Joneses and making it okay to live more simply. Let's make it feel good to live better together with less stuff. So I wanna end with a couple things. Uh, I promised a song that I wrote. I don't know if those of you saw Facebook. I'm not gonna sing it. So I don't know if that's a disappointment or an encouragement to you. But first I wanna read this quote. Oh, I guess I have it here too. From Paul Paul Kingsnorth. This is a guy who was a huge um, environmental activist, uh, pagan and um, Uh, just all it cared about was the the earth. And then he realized he needed more than that as well. And uh, this is uh, the final paragraph of where he describes his life's journey. this is what he says. In the kingdom of humanity, the seas are ribboned with plastic. The forests are burning. The cities bulge with billionaires and tented camps. And still we kneel before the idol of the great God economy as it grows and grows like a cancer cell. But what if this ancient faith, Christianity, is not an obstacle after all, but a way through? As we see the consequences of eating the forbidden fruit, of choosing power over humility, of separation over communion, the stakes become clearer each day. Surrender or rebellion, sacrifice or conquest, death of the self or triumph of the will, the cross or the machine. We have always been offered the same choice. The gate is straight and the way is narrow, and maybe we will always fail to walk it. But is there any other road that leads home? So um, this last song, it's the, it's the final song on, on Becca's first CD. It was a lullaby that I wrote for the kids uh, when they were little, based on uh, the end of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew. Uh, so I'll, I'll say just a brief thing after, but here's a song by, uh, with, with Becca singing uh, songs from, from Jesus.
1: i at the birds He
0: The computer got taken off. This is the main thing. So can you skip? skip. That's the table from the beginning filled. So let's fill that table together to be rooted in love together in a way that we involve each other in the economies and the daily lives of each other. And uh, I'll end with a prayer today. God, you know our, our fears about tomorrow, about our finances, about the future, uh, are real and challenging, especially if we feel alone. So I pray that you'd help us to trust and build community more and more. is so much weight of things um, pushing in the other direction in our society. So I pray that we would just build up our voice in speaking for something different
1: and demonstrating something different. So um, Be at the table with us.
0: Fill our tables. And help us to do life well with you. Amen. Thanks.